Unless you're a madman, you can't make do in the art fields. You've got to be inspired and mad and excited and love it more than anything else in the world. And to hell with the relatives, and if any girl doesn't like what you're doing, out of your life. And if any of your friends, uh, male friends, make fun of you, to hell with them. Out. Out. <laughs> but it has to be this kind of, by God, I've got to do it. I've simply got to do it. And if you're not this excited, you can't win. Welcome to Living from the Soul. This is your host, Sam Tarode, and today I'm honored to be speaking with Sam Weller, the authorized biographer of one of my favorite writers, Ray Bradbury. You heard a clip from Ray Bradbury at the beginning of this episode, and the next best thing to speaking with Ray himself is speaking with Sam Weller. In addition to his biography, The Bradbury Chronicles, Sam collaborated with Ray on Listen to the Echoes, a collection of interviews, and Shadow Show, all new stories in celebration of Ray Bradbury. A fiction writer as well, Sam's newest book is a collection of short stories titled Dark Black. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sam Weller. Hey, Sam. Sam, hello. How are you? Great. Fantastic. What a cool thing you're doing, man. I mean, what a, what a great project. Thanks, and I'm glad you took the risk, took me up on the invitation. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't miss it. I mean, I, the whole sort of concept behind what you're doing is really uh, near and dear to me, as I said when I responded to your email. Um, and it's something that I talked uh, about extensively with Ray Bradbury, and, you know, it was important to him, too, you know, uh, so this is I think this is a topic that, you know, I wish he, he could be here with us to talk about because I think he'd be really interested in it. Mm. My first memory involving Ray Bradbury was watching Something Wicked This Way Comes on television. I think it was around Halloween time they played that movie and it was terrifying for me as a kid, especially the scene where Mr. Dark is looking for the boys and he squeezes his hand and blood drips out and falls on the boys who are hiding in the grate below his feet. It's one of those images that has stuck with me my whole life. So what was your first exposure to Ray Bradbury? You know, I wrote about it in the intro to my first biography, uh, The Bradbury Chronicles, and this is something that really captivated Ray Bradbury. I think really my first encounter with Bradbury was in utero. Oddly enough, my mom was in her last month of pregnancy with me and my dad would read books aloud to her. Uh, it was winter and they were sort of, you know, they were cooped up indoors. It was a terrific blizzard that year. And he read, he loved, my father loved Bradbury and he read The Illustrated Man aloud to my mom while I was, you know, nine months in utero. And then many years later, I become the man's biographer. So I think there's something mystical, possibly, <laughs> at, the very mi at the very minimum, I mean, absolutely magical. You know, he loved that. He thought that that sounded like a Bradbury story. I mean, The Illustrated Man is a weird book to read to a pregnant woman because it's, it's rather dark, dystopian, and frightening at times. But when I was 11, 
my dad had a terrific bookcase in his home office. And I, I found that paperback copy of the illustrated man, the same exact copy he had read to my mother 11 years earlier. And I pulled it off, just captivated by the, I pulled it off the shelf, just captivated by the cover. Um, It was a depiction of, you know, this illustrated man from behind. You're looking at his back with this molten red lava sort of landscape and he's sitting on a wooden crate with nails on it he's sitting cross-legged and you're looking at him from behind and his body is just covered in ooze and i was just captivated by that image and i opened the book up randomly to a story called the long rains and read that story it's about a, a crew um that has crash landed on the surface of venus and their venus and bradbury's world is a is a rain planet. It, it, it rains torrential rains all every day, all day, all year long. And they're they're seeking. There's these sun domes that people have built on the planet where you can get away from the rain and go in and find warmth. And I read that, and it felt sort of like a Jack London man versus nature survival adventure story set on this incredibly visual cinematic landscape of Venus. And I just was so captivated by that story that that made me go back to the beginning of the book. And then I read The Velt, which is the first story, which is really one of the most, you know, anthologized and famous stories by Bradbury. And so discovering that book, both in the womb and then as an 11 year old, you know, I think Bradbury is this magical writer for young adult and and middle grade readers who are starting to discover literature in in school, uh, they, they're often hesitant. Uh, they don't quite get it. You need a really good teacher, I think, to walk a young reader through a, a classic that was written for an adult. That's a, that's a very tricky situation to navigate. And Bradbury is this incredible gateway author for the discovery of literature for young readers. And so I was just in love with him instantaneously. That, that book just did it. And from that point forward, it was, what else is out there? What else did he write? And then I discovered, oh my goodness, this man has been writing for decades and he's just wildly prolific. And there was so much Bradbury to, to discover that it became really a lifelong pursuit for me. And then that, you know, made me just, eventually want to start to write my own stories, nonfiction and fiction, and become a writer myself. So really, really just a absolutely magical period of discovery. And I, I, you know, I don't think there are many writers who are that great as, as gateway writers as Ray Bradbury is. Yeah. Somehow I made it through my teens and twenties without really reading any Ray Bradbury. And then when I, when I was in my early 30s, I was in the library and saw the cover of the book Bradbury Speaks, and it's a collection of his essays and speeches. I pulled that off the shelf and, and just devoured it and was loved his philosophy so much and his, the exuberance for life that he exhibits yeah. in his essays. So then from there, I, I went back and picked up the Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451 and started actually reading his work. And then pretty soon after found your biography, the Bradbury Chronicles there in the library and read that. I 
I think it was about 2008 or so. When did that book come out? 2005. Okay, so yeah, I read it just a few years later. And I found that I like reading about Ray Bradbury as much as I like reading Ray Bradbury's own fiction because he's such a, a fascinating character and and I can't think of anyone else with such exuberance that, that he conveys. How did you end up meeting Ray in person? You know, I think exuberance is the right word. This man loved life and living. He really did. Um, he celebrated life, you know, and I met him in 2000. He had turned 80 that year or was turning 80. I met him in May of 2000. I, at that point, had become a professional writer, thanks in large part to reading Bradbury as, as, as a teenager. And then that caused me to read other writers and discover really the joy of reading and the joy of writing. And I owe so much of that to Ray Bradbury. And so I was a professional writer at that point. I had worked for several alternative newspapers, writing about popular culture in various facets. Uh, and then I went to work for Publishers Weekly, the Bible of the book business. And then I started writing for the Chicago Tribune. And in May of 2000, I pitched a story, a celebratory profile of Ray Bradbury, who uh, for, to my editor at the Chicago Tribune Sunday Magazine. And... Bradbury, of course, was born in Illinois uh, in, on August 22nd, 1920. And so it was sort of as he was crossing the threshold into the realm of the octogenarian, crossing over into the 80s, as it were, uh, I pitched this uh, a profile of him. And, to, you know, really very selfishly hoping that it would give me the opportunity to meet this man who made me want to write and who made me become a reader. And to my great delight, I pitched six stories that day to my editor and she greenlit, I think four of the six of them. And one of them was this profile of Ray Bradbury. He had moved to Los Angeles at the age of 13 uh, in April of 1934 and lived in LA for the rest of his life. And so I flew from Chicago where I live to Los Angeles on Memorial Day weekend uh, 2000. And when I walked through the front door, the first thing I saw to my left on the wall in the foyer was the original painting of the illustrated man that adorned the cover of the book my dad had read to my mom. I had discovered when I was 11, and it just had this tremendous sense of the doors had opened to Oz for Dorothy for me. And then I heard his booming voice coming from the living room, which was sort of, it was, it was a multi-level home in, in West Los Angeles. And I heard, come in, come in, welcome. And I, I looked down and there is this larger than life, unbelievable figure, uh, Ray Bradbury, you know, dressed in white tennis shorts, white socks, white shoes, uh, a white, pressed white shirt and a, a colorful tie with, I believe, Easter eggs on it. Exuberance is the word, Sam. I mean, he just exploded life. He loved it, and that's that's was the first meeting, and it and it led to many others. Well, it's one thing to be exuberant about life, and it's another thing to be able to write about it. And I think that's something that's so unique with Bradbury. I want to read just one paragraph from Dandelion Wine, my favorite Bradbury book, and 
get your thoughts on that. This is when uh, the main character, Douglas Spaulding, he's wrestling with his brother in the grass and he has a moment where he realizes that he's alive for the first time. The grass whispered under his body. He put his arm down, feeling the sheath of fuzz on it, and far away below, his toes creaking in his shoes. The wind sighed over his shelled ears. The world slipped bright over the glassy round of his eyeballs, like images sparked in a crystal sphere. Flowers were sun and fiery spots of sky strewn through the woodland. Birds flickered like skipped stones across the vast inverted pond of heaven. His breath raked over his teeth, going in ice, coming out fire. Insects shocked the air with electric clearness. 10,000 individual hairs grew a millionth of an inch on his head. He heard the twin hearts beating in each ear, the third heart beating in his throat, the two hearts throbbing in his wrists, and the real heart pounding in his chest. The million pores on his body opened. I'm really alive, he thought. I never knew it before. I think that's such a remarkable paragraph. For one thing, it's so full of imagery and, uh, and metaphor. I think most writers could spend a month on, on one paragraph like that, and he has an entire book of it. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And that is very much Ray Bradbury. I mean, even though that, that's a, a fictional story cycle or novel in stories, that sense of the discovery of really being alive was the essence of Ray Bradbury. I mean, when he was a child, he had that sort of awakening moment when he was 10, 11, and 12 of, you know, really smelling the proverbial roses in everything he did, you know, be it the grass on his skin or the birds, you know, in the sky, or just really like opening up his senses to the majesty of the universe and what it means to be alive. And once he sort of awoke into that, he never let it go. I mean, he almost lived to the age of 92 years old and he had that exuberance, that's your word and it's perfect, um, for life and the majesty of, of creation. Uh, everywhere we went, I mean, I, when I would visit him, I, I, in the course of working on that first biography, I visited him every two weeks for about five years, you know, and I would fly from Chicago to Los Angeles. And, and I, when the weekend was over, I felt, I, I, I found that my sort of psyche, my, my outlook on life had changed because of being around that exuberance. You know, if he would walk out of his house and, and his wife of 56 years had planted this beautiful rose garden in their backyard and he would go out and, and, and smell it and marvel at the sunshine falling down upon him. And the, the elder statesman Ray Bradbury, the globally renowned author, still had that same appreciation for the micro details of existence that you saw Douglas Spaulding had in Dandelion Wine. I mean, he, that was Ray Bradbury, absolutely. Whenever I have the chance to meet uh, English teachers, middle school or high school, and because I have four kids, the chance comes, <laughs> comes along pretty often. I recommend that they assign dandelion wine or something wicked this way comes in their classes. Those are my two favorites. When I was in high school, you know, we had to read Shakespeare and things like Wuthering Heights. 
and a lot of stuff that I just didn't couldn't feel a connection to, couldn't get into at that age. Yeah. And the one book that did grab me in high school was The Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. We we read that in twelfth grade. And that had a big effect in sparking my interest and love for literature. But now I also see that's a very cynical book. Mm-hmm. And in, in The Catcher in the Rye, you know, all the older people are phonies. Yeah. And I think Bradbury would be an antidote to that. And I think it would be important to assign you know, something like Dandelion Wine along, along with that as a counterpoint. Because in the Bradbury books, the young people and the you know, they, they become connected to the older people as, as mentors. And in Something Wicked This Way comes, there's some disconnection between the father and son in that book. And then by the end, they've come together. And I think that would, that's really important for young people to read. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you've raised so many good points. I mean, Salinger and Bradbury were both sort of enjoying what would be considered on a scholarly level, their golden periods very much at the same time. I mean, Bradbury's recognized period of absolute mastery was, you know, roughly the late 1940s to 1962 with the publication of Something Wicked This Way Comes. And in that time, he wrote Dandelion Wine, which you're talking about, The Golden Apples of the Sun, The Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451, The October Country, a medicine for melancholy. I mean, he was he was absolutely working on all cylinders pumping, and he was you know. And Salinger came of age and was enjoying his his period of prolificacy and brilliance at the same time. Bradbury wasn't a big fan of Salinger because, as to what you're saying, it was a little too cynical for him. I think if you look at early Bradbury, there is a paranoia to the Martian Chronicles or the Illustrated Man. There's a darkness. There is a cynicism to those stories, but there's always a kernel of hope. Even in Fahrenheit 451, the resistance, if you will, the people in the woods are memorizing the books for posterity. There's there's that hope that literature will be saved in the minds of the people who choose to remember the books. I'm a tremendous fan of, of Catcher in the Rye. I love that book. And I think you're getting at something really important, uh, Sam, when it comes to the present generation of, of young readers or the present generation of non-readers, you know, we're seeing, you know, a huge decline in Gen Z when it comes to reading, sadly, because I think, you know, and studies are showing that obviously their attention spans are greatly challenged because of technology something that Bradbury actually addressed in Fahrenheit 451. And so I think it's really important to your point of what you did with your children and their English teachers and going to them and say, read Dandelion Wine, read Something Wicked This Way Comes. Because again, these are these gateway books that might open their eyes to more discovery of reading. And I think you actually are alienating. This might be controversial to some English teachers who work really hard, and I don't mean to disparage them, but when you're assigning the Shakespeare's and Thackeray and all these heavy old canonical works, I think oftentimes you're going to alienate these reluctant readers. You need to captivate them with a book that speaks to them. And Bradbury does it with imagination and majesty of language and metaphor. Salinger does it with appealing to 
youthful rebellion and teen angst. And that's it's a, Catcher in the Rye is actually, to me, a quite a beautiful book in that it addresses anxiety, it addresses depression, which, you know, a lot of uh, young people, I, I'm a college professor, and I've seen a huge increase in mental health issues in the 15 years that I've taught. And I think Catcher in the Rye actually speaks to that, and it was written throughout the second half of the 1940s. I think it's a beautiful book, but you're right that the antidote to Catcher in the Rye is Dandelion Wine. They'd be really fascinating books assigned together. It seems like Fahrenheit 451 may be the, the most remembered Bradbury book today or the most assigned. One feeling I have about that is that people often misunderstand it in terms of censorship. They think it's a book simply about banning things. So when you know when a book comes along that that has obscenity or violence, and that gets removed from the library, then everyone starts screaming Fahrenheit 451. But really, I think that book is more about the dumbing down of culture and the dangers of an entertainment-driven society. Yeah, you know, um, Bradbury would absolutely 100% wholeheartedly agree with you. He said he wrote that as an indictment of the proliferation of television in early 1950s America. And he saw the, the rise of technology and the importance and stranglehold it might potentially have upon uh, our society and how it would contribute, as you said, to the dumbing down of culture. And so Bradbury would say that, no, this is not a book about Big Brother. That's 1984. This is a book about uh, people willfully accepting censorship in their lives because they don't want to be challenged any longer. They don't want to be troubled. Uh, They just want the easy way out, and that's through willfully dumbing themselves down and becoming a society where ignorance is bliss. But it's not, as we see, because Guy Montag's spouse, Mildred, is supposedly one of these people happy with her wall-to-wall, literally wall-to-wall television, but yet at the opening of the novel, she's overdosed because she's sedating herself and her, her sorrows. And so there's a malaise to that dumbed-down culture that they're not even aware of any longer. They've just accepted it. And I agree with you. I mean, this is the book that he's most often recognized for, you know? I mean, it's been published in 40 languages roughly around the world. It's it's one of the best-selling classics of the 20th century. It's often cited as his critical masterpiece. Critically, it's cited as his masterpiece, but I would actually, I think we could go to an arm wrestling match on, as you say, Dandelion Wine, Something Wicked This Way Comes, or The Martian Chronicles um, as, as equally as powerful books, or for that matter, potentially even better books. But I think there's something culturally that Bradbury was saying with Fahrenheit 451 that has continued to resonate thematically with each subsequent generation that has followed its publication. And even to this day, you know, as, as we see all the, everything that's going on in our world on so many different levels, people are quick to cite something as Orwellian uh, on both sides of the political aisle, and people are quick to cite 
things as Bradburyan or that's Fahrenheit 451. Um, but to your great point, I think they're missing they're missing the point. Although I do think it's important to note that he wrote it just after World War II and Hitler had burned books and in the midst, very much in the midst of the Red Scare and the rise of McCarthyism. So he was addressing it. But I think as you've so aptly stated, he was addressing the rise of totalitarianism and the rise of fascism, not through the government lens, but through the people's lens and how they're just accepting it and they're, they're going along with it, they're fine with it. And I think some people could see parallels uh, today, obviously, with, you know, we just had an election. I don't want to get political here. I know you're interested in politics. I follow you on Twitter. As you know, I'm interested in politics, but yeah. people are definitely, you know, there was a 30%, you know, 70 million people voted for the other side that did not win. We need to state that. And so are those 70 million people, the people of Fahrenheit 451 who are just accepting what they're being told? They're just going along with it. Um, so I think every generation, after 9-11, people connected to Fahrenheit 451 and saw the Patriot Act and started seeing connections. Every generation can cling to that book and say, this book speaks to our times. And that's why that book has resonated and is looked at as his masterpiece. I don't necessarily agree that it's his prose masterpiece. I don't necessarily agree that it's the best written Bradbury book. It's beautifully written. But I think there are other books, as you've stated, that are even more beautifully written. Yeah, he even prefigures a reality television in Fahrenheit 451. And there's a, there's a show called The Family that everyone is watching, which is basically, you know, it could be the Kardashians. <laughs> God forbid. Could you imagine if Ray Bradbury had to write about the Kardashians? <laughs> <laughs> I remember on that note, walking into his house one day in 2003, and the irony of ironies is he had a 70-inch flat panels television screen in his, in his den. So you're like, Ray, you know, I mean, you're indicting television and wall-to-wall -wall TV, and you've got one yourself. And, and he would laugh. He had a great sense of humor, and he said, um, you know, I'm not against all TV. Don't get me wrong. I'm just against bad TV. And then as he's saying this, I, I turn around and look what he's watching. And keep in mind, I mean, this was, you know, 15... 18 years ago, he was watching uh, a reality television show on MTV. Oh, wow. And it was, it was the Osbournes. So Ray Bradbury is watching the Ozzy Osbourne family. <laughs> and and I, I couldn't believe that this icon of ma literary masterpieces is watching the Osbournes on MTV. And I said, why are you watching this? He said, I can't figure out a damn thing that man is saying. Who is that? What? <laughs> Like he, 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 Ozzy speaks in this, this you know, thick British accent affected by decades of drug use. Uh, you know, so uh, you know, Bradbury's just sitting there trying to decipher who the hell is this man and what is he saying? It was just absolutely hilarious. The guy had the greatest sense of humor I've ever encountered. It was just fantastic. Well, I guess we all get sucked into uh, empty entertainment now and then. Uh, totally. Well, Bradbury was also ahead of his time in addressing racial issues huh? in his fiction. I think he had the story, The Big Black and White Game, about uh, baseball teams. Mm -hmm. Another story I enjoyed quite a bit from him is called Chrysalis from the, mm -hmm. from the 1940s. It's confusing because he had two stories that he named Chrysalis. 
But it, but in this one, it's two boys, one white and one black, who are friends on the beach. And over the course of the summer, the the white friend tans until he's the same color as the black friend. And then the man who runs the ice cream stand on the beach confuses them and refuses to serve the the white boy. And it, it was such a powerful story, and I think a, ahead of his time. We're seeing a lot of writers from that era being criticized today. I know Flannery O'Connor, great short story writer, has gotten a lot of heat lately for racism, whether conscious or unconscious, in her stories. So I think Bradbury is something we can stand up for and say he was aware of these issues and writing about them very early on. Excellent point. Um, You know, it was really sad to see the news emerge of Flannery O'Connor's letters sort of becoming public and, you know, people seeing that the deep-seated racism in her letters that does not emerge so much in her fiction. I mean, all of us have read A Good Man is Hard to Find and Flannery O'Connor's essays are absolutely wonderful. But I think O'Connor is just one writer who is going to face the reckoning of you know, hopefully what emerges as a post-racial world that we're all trying to get to. Um, And I think a lot of writers of that era are going to face the same fate. Bradbury, at the exact same time in the mid-1940s, as you said, published his first story dealing with the topic of race in America in American Mercury Magazine in 1945, and it was the story The Big Black and White Game as you just said, and that was a, that was very much almost a a autobiographical short story. I mean, it really is, it's almost nonfiction. When he was um, a young kid living in Illinois, they would, the family would go up to a resort in Southern Wisconsin. His his dad, Ray Bradbury's father worked for the local electricity company in Waukegan, where Bradbury grew up. And the electricity company would take, the utility company would take all the employees every summer up to this, this lodge in southern Wisconsin on um, Lake Delavan, which is just adjacent to Lake Geneva in southern Wisconsin. And they would go up there every summer. And uh, that, that resort is still there. I take my own family there. I mean, it's, it's really wonderful. I can vacation in the same space that Ray Bradbury went to as a little boy. But tragically, uh, one night, his father... And his co-workers, all white workers for the utility company, were playing uh, the African-American employees of the resort. And a brawl broke out. And this young kid is sitting in the bleachers witnessing this. And instantly, this is the Douglas Spaulding you brought up in, in Dandelion Wine. He, he's woke now. He, he's woke to everything at 12. And he sees the absurdity and the tragedy and the sadness of this brawl between an African-American team and a white team you know, pummeling one another and doesn't see it as, a, as a, a sports melee, but as a race melee. And Bradbury, you know, says, all of our great art comes from the wellspring of our experiences and you must examine them through your creativity. And, and he, he examined that when he was 25 years old and wrote that story and it was collected 
that was his first appearance in the Best American Short Stories of the Year for that story. That is really the Academy Awards, the Oscars of short fiction. Bradbury was selected that year. So that story was very pivotal in his being deemed a serious writer. And for a long time, he, he was deemed the poet of the pulps, you know, because he was writing for weird tales and um, detective publications and so on. And that story was one of the first to break him into what is known as the slicks, the glossy, more expensive literary magazines. Uh, and then to be anthologized in Best American Short Stories of the Year, um, he was now looked at as this is a very, very serious force of literary writing who happens to dabble frequently in genre fiction. Where would you place Bradbury in terms of the American literary tradition? I was an English major and an art major in college, and in both of those subjects, they like to teach them by movements. So you might have romanticism and followed by realism. And I think Bradbury can get left out because he was so different from this slice of life and realistic fiction being produced at the at that time in the 40s and 50s? It's a fantastic question. Um, I think it's, you, Bradbury himself did not like labels. He did not want to be uh, categorized. He liked to work across genres and to muddy up the boundaries of things. Uh, and so it's very hard to place him in one in one category, if not impossible, because he fits into many. But in the course of doing the Bradbury Chronicles, I had the great honor of interviewing Harold Bloom, who's, you know, this renowned scholar of literature, this renowned critic. And he said, you know, without any question, Bradbury is a romantic. He hails from the tradition of Wordsworth and Keats and William Butler Yeats and Walt Whitman. And I, I do think that that's absolutely true. I mean, if we look at the nostalgia, the love of life, the beauty, the, the, the celebration, if you will, of melancholy in the work of Bradbury, he romanticizes loneliness. He romanticizes the melancholy as part of our experience of living. Um, and so I think we can easily fit Bradbury into the romantics, but he did not like realistic fiction much at all, even though he wrote it himself. The Big Black and White Game is one example. I See You Never is a great short story that was published in The New Yorker in 1946. He wrote realistic fiction, but he, he didn't really like a lot of realistic fiction because he felt that we live reality and it's challenging and at times very difficult and very sad. We've had enough reality. Fiction needs to be an escape for us. It needs to be an avenue for us to get away from reality. So I think it's really, I think Bradbury is without any question a romantic, but I also think uh, without any question, he's one of the great fantasists of, of literature, regardless of era. I mean, he, he looked at life through the window of the fantastic. Even Dandelion Wine, without any elements of what we would deem true, high, or low fantasy, Dandelion Wine is still looking through life through the window of the fantastic. It's just a realistic window. But if we look at The Martian Chronicles, which is actually more a book of fantasy than it is science fiction, I think when people think, well, it's set on another planet, so it must be science fiction, he disagreed with that. He said, no, it's, it's not, it couldn't happen. If it can't happen, it's fantasy. We can't 
live and walk on Mars without helmets on. The hills are not blue. It's a work of fantasy. So I think he's, he's one of our great realist, romantic fantasists. He combines all three of those things. I gave the Martian Chronicles to my son when he was in about seventh or eighth grade. And he said, I, I can't get into this because we know there's no life on Mars. <laughs> no people on Mars. <laughs> or this has been disproven. So what would you say to that? There's a, a remarkable clip on YouTube of Bradbury uh, at a symposium at UCLA in 1971. And he's on stage with Carl Sagan, the great writer, philosopher and scientist, Arthur C. Clarke, the great writer and, and others. And he's on stage and he tells a story of a young man coming up to him at a book signing. A 10-year-old boy a few years ago ran up to me and he said, is that Mr. Bradbury? I said, yes. He said, that book of yours, The Martian Chronicles? I said, yes. He says, on page 92, <laughs> he says, where you have the moons of Mars uh, rising in the east? I say, yes. He says, no. <laughs> And he's, he's, he's jesting, of course. And, and, you know, I'm not signing your book. You know? uh, uh, he said, you know, people who apply authentic technical science to his works are missing the point completely. You know, that these are visions of the human condition. They're not meant to be dissected for their technical accuracy. He had no interest in that whatsoever. And because of that, you know, he came of age during the golden era of science fiction. You know, the, uh, John Campbell, the great science fiction editor, um, you know, was credited with editing the best of science fiction through that era. They never really accepted Bradbury. Frederick Pohl, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Clark, they all liked Bradbury. They were all friends with him. They all knew he was a beautiful writer, but they didn't admire him as a science fiction writer. They didn't appreciate what he was doing in the sense that they were very caught up in scientific accuracy. This is, after all, science fiction. So he was always kept at an arm's length. Fascinating, really, Sam, if you think about it. Kept at a distance from the world of science fiction. Like, you're a great writer. We love you, Ray Bradbury. You're not one of us. Kept at a distance from the literary establishment because they're like, you're a great writer, but you write fantasy. You write science fiction. You write horror. And you're a genre writer. So, so he was kept at, at arm's length by both communities and kind of had to find his own island. And at the end of the day, he always had this philosophy is don't worry about it. Just get your work done. Keep writing. Keep creating. You mentioned that he believed fiction should be somewhat of an escape from ordinary life. That reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Ray Bradbury, which is, stay drunk on writing so that reality will not destroy you. <laughs> I wish there was, I, I would love to do a book called The Quotable Bradbury, just a book of his philosophies, like these quotes. 
he had so many of these wisdoms. Um, do what you love and love what you do. That was his mantra very much at the end of his life. Do what you love and love what you do. Of course, there's the famous one that I used at the beginning of the biography I wrote, jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. You know, I mean, yeah. it was just filled with these philosophies that often utilize the central metaphor to convey the philosophy. You know, I, I've thought about one of my books. We, we know how cable television has what we call a crawl down at the bottom of the screen where we've got a ticker of breaking news or the Dow Jones Industrial Average or whatever. I thought about one of my books actually doing a ticker at the bottom of each page with quotes from Bradbury. You know, just every page has a, has a quotable Bradbury. Uh, at some point, I'd still like to do that um, because, yeah, you're the philosophies. This is what people don't often cite about him is, yes, he's a poet without any question. Aldous Huxley, who wrote A Brave New World, said, you are a poet. He told him that you're a poet, um, that meaning that his, his he might write novels and short stories, but they are drenched in poetry. Yeah. But I think the one thing that people often don't recognize is that he's also one of our great philosophers. And that really comes out in your book, Listen to the Echoes, which is a collection of interviews that you conducted over the years with Ray Bradbury. I'd like to read uh, one paragraph out of that book. Great. So here's a, a part of your interview where you're asking Ray Bradbury about his spirituality. He says, the soul is a metaphorical concept. The life energies that make you and me work is a life energy built into the protoplasm. But when you look at the fertilized egg in the woman's uterus, it's a little tiny mass of plasma. There's nothing there. And then something tells it to create an eye, another eye, ears, a body. This little thing forms. It's living in water and feeds off the mother's umbilical cord. And suddenly this child appears, which was nothing but a sperm and an egg. It's all very miraculous. Where in the cell is the energy that tells the cell to do all that? It's too mysterious. We just don't know. So you've got to give up asking and think about the future. I thought that was a marvelous statement. You know, they say that the sense of smell is probably the most... Um, the strongest for all of us and that and it, it creates the strongest sense of memory so if you smell something you might it might recall the kitchen of your grandmother or something and to me you can read me a quote of bradbury from that book you decided listen to the echoes that i did and i know exactly where i was when he said those different quotes so that quote you just read from which i love that really gets at the essence of bradbury in many ways um we were in the car, I was driving, and we had just visited his lifelong friend, Forrest J. Ackerman, who, you know, was this, invented the term sci-fi, and, you know, was the founder of Famous Monsters Magazine, and was really known as the first real collector of, of science fiction memorabilia. I mean, really this legendary, we just visited Forey, and we were driving back from his house, and Ray and I were talking about the mystery of spirituality, religion, prophets. We're having this really profound discussion, and, and I, I, I can see him like it was yesterday, sitting in the passenger seat, reciting what you just read, word for word. He said that. 
And he really appreciated the fact that with all of our technical know-how, we can invent a vehicle to get us to the surface of the moon. We can create a devastating weapon to destroy an entire city. We can, we can treat illnesses uh, that we couldn't treat 100 years ago through vaccines and through different you know, scientific means. And with all of this scientific know-how, with all of this hubris that humanity has to take on anything, anything we set our minds to, we cannot solve the mystery of the universe. And he loved that because he said the mystery is too great. It's, it's a mystery that he did not want to solve. Something should re remain mysterious, that the majesty and mystery of the universe is beyond our realm of understanding, no matter how great our technological acumen may be. And so he celebrated the fact that the sperm and the egg can come together and create this life force and that we can't really really figure out how does that become this energy force that could grow up to be you sam or me or ray douglas bradbury and how how does that happen and he he always said we'll never know and i love that we'll never know he loved the mystery of of the miracle of life i've read a lot of scientific books it's been an area of interest of mine. We have a popular idea that, oh, DNA explains everything. You know, natural selection leads to the DNA, and once you get to that point, it explains everything. But one of my favorite philosophers of science, Rupert Sheldrake, don't know if you've heard of him. I have. He's written, it, he's written extensively on this, how the DNA does not explain the formation of beings. You know, every cell has the same DNA in it, yet one cell becomes a heart cell, another a lung cell, another a bone cell. And he writes about this in great depth, but really what it comes down to is that it is a mystery. Yeah, I mean, that, that mirrors Bradbury's philosophy on life. We talked about this frequently. How did Ray Bradbury become Ray Bradbury? How does a little boy born into really abject poverty in 1920, their home in Waukegan was tiny. Uh, the family was very much down on its luck. Um, you know, what, what he recreated in the semi-autobiographical Dandelion Wine was a romanticized vision of the real Bradbury experience. The love that he experienced from his grandparents and from his parents was very much the same but he fantasized and, and made it more nostalgic, better. Um, Bradbury, you know, his, he didn't, wasn't born into a, his parents weren't readers. They didn't put a high premium on creativity. Yet one of the great creative minds of the 20th century somehow emerges. How did that happen? And he felt that it, it was a great primordial stirring of, as you say, nature, nurture, and magic. Nature meaning the DNA. His grandfather ran a newspaper. His uncle, Sam, who passed away of the, the flu epidemic in 1918, um, was a poet. His aunt Neva, so dresses, was an illustrator, uh, was an artist, oil paintings. I mean, just did all forms of different art. So there was creativity in the DNA, as you're saying. But then there's an aspect of how he was cultivated. 
Aunt Neva introduced him to Edgar Allan Poe and The Wizard of Oz and um, Alice in Wonderland and children's illustrated children's fairy tales. His mother brought him to see The Hunchback of Notre Dame starring Lon Chaney in 1923 when he was just three years old. So we've got the DNA, we've got the nurturing aspect of people introducing him to things that he would become known for himself. And then we have the unexplainable, the unknown, the, the mystical aspect of uh, life and how we become who we are. And it's those, it's that triangle, you know, nature, nurture, and, and mystery that converge and created Ray Bradbury. Another of my favorite Bradbury quotes is, the meaning of life is to witness and to celebrate. Yeah, he really believed that, you know, again, here he is speaking in metaphors. He believed that the universe is a, is a theater and we are the audience and that we're here to view the miracle of the universe and to celebrate it, witness and celebrate. Yeah, and I like that statement too, because he doesn't get into any dogma, you know, there's no statement that that has to be taken on faith or belief in a particular prophet or sacred writing. It's just very basic. It's right to the heart of experience. Yeah, it really does. He, you know, the first time I met him, uh, as I told you, I interviewed him for the Chicago Tribune in 2000. I asked him, I said, there's a lot of spirituality, a lot of Christian references in his work. And I asked him, did he have a faith? And again, speaking in metaphors, he said, uh, I'm a delicatessen religionist. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, I, it's like a deli platter. And I take a little from Buddhism, a little from Christianity, uh, a little from Islam, a little from Judaism. He said, if you look at all the faiths over time, many of them have the same messages. And there's something to glean from all of them. And so, he, he you know, when he was... 18 and 19 years old, he was very interested in all of this and started going to different uh, synagogues, temples, cathedrals, uh, churches, places of worship across Los Angeles. Los Angeles in the 30s was this hotbed of, of spirituality. There was a lot of occult churches, there was occultism, and he, would, he was visiting all of them as a spectator and stuffing them into himself as metaphors that would later emerge in his creativity. I was just remembering the closest I ever personally got to Ray Bradbury was in the early 2000s. I was a freelance book designer for a publishing company called Erdman's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I was also a friend of the family of Russell Kirk, who was a Michigan writer, well-known political philosopher, but he also wrote ghost stories. And uh, he was a friend of Ray Bradbury, in fact. Yeah. And uh, Russell Kirk had passed away, but I had spoken with his, with his wife about wanting to produce a new volume of Russell Kirk's ghost stories. And I helped uh, propose this idea to the publisher, Erdman's. And I said, you could have Ray Bradbury give an endorsement for it. And they did end up uh, doing the book and, I was able to do the cover design and illustration for it. And it has a Ray Bradbury endorsement right on the front cover. So I was very proud of that. One of, one of my best moments as a freelance book designer. What year was that published? What year did that come out? 
around uh, 2004, I think. And the book is called Ancestral Shadows. You know, we probably talked about that. He, he loved Russell Kirk. I'm sure I was working with him heavily at that period of time. And I'm sure he showed the book to me. Um, you know, he, he, had, he was a great admirer and friend, as you said, with Russell Kirk. And, and that's a really cool thing that you followed through on. So I'm glad you had that brush with Bradbury and were able to achieve that. That's really great. Yeah. I think you said earlier you started writing your own fiction when you were a teenager. Yeah. I just put my hands on that terrible little novel, you know, uh, last weekend. I was putting all the Christmas ornaments away up in the attic. And as, uh, as doing something like that often is the case, I started to sort through other things in the attic that were unrelated to Christmas ornaments, you know. And I went through a box and put my hand on an old spiral notebook. And there was the, no the mystery novel I wrote when I was 11. You know, I just discovered Bradbury at that time. Um, and, uh, it, you know, that novel is terrible. I mean, I was 11 years old. It's not Bradbury by any means. It's more Hardy Boys meets Scooby-Doo, actually, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, th these are the things you have to go through to grow. And, and I, you know, what I discovered more than anything is I loved the process of writing. Uh, I, I loved the experience of sitting down at a desk alone in my own zone I always, I always listen to music when I've written, and I know a lot of people can't do that because it's distracting. But if I put something on that I'm very accustomed to, music that I know very well, it becomes kind of this background. Um, and so I've always done that. And I, it became this glorious celebration for the act of creativity. I was always sort of a creative kid who liked to do things in isolation. I, I would build old model model kits that you could buy and glue and paint and all that and built things. I was really into illustration and comic books. I loved the process of getting in that zone. And so, yeah, I mean, Bradbury was one of the jump starts to the electricity that ignited my yearning for being creative myself, made me sit down and want to write, made me want to draw, made me want to play music. I explore all these avenues and still do. And he was one of the catalysts for that. And then that made me become, as I, as I, I wrote and wrote and wrote through that, you get better. You have to have years of being a terrible writer um, to be become a better writer. Bradbury went through the same thing. You have years of being imitative, writing Ray Bradbury stories, writing Hardy Boys books. You have, you have to go through your imitative period then you go through this period of struggling to find your own identity, your voice as a writer. What is your voice? And it becomes a distillation of your own creative mentors. And you eventually emerge. You eventually blossom into you. And that took a long time. But along the way, I explored other things. Filmmaking, uh, music. I wrote and illustrated my own comic books. And then I realized that at the core of all these things is storytelling. Yeah. Um, whether you're writing a song or you're writing a comic book, I mean, you're telling a story. And so that made me pursue uh, in college and then graduate school becoming a writer. So it was this, this, this long, unintentional, organic process that I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, it's been, you know this as well as anybody, having done as many books as you have. And the struggle then to get those books out to the world 
there are aspects of it that are quite arduous that are a lot that's hard work it's hard work particularly the marketing and promotion and distribution and, and all that stuff it, it's a hustle you have to hustle you know that but nothing changes when i sit down in my studio which i share with the illustrator of my new book when i sit down i'm still that 11 year old kid writing a bad scooby-doo hardy boys book with musical <laughs> Oh, that's great. I have your new book here, Dark Black. It's a collection of stories. And first off, it's just physically a beautiful production. Thank you. The illustration, and it's illustrated throughout. So you sh you actually share your studio there with the illustrator. Yeah, Dan Jetsa, I met at a music festival in Chicago where I live and he lives. And I, he was selling, he had a booth at a music festival. He was selling his prints and they're beautiful, and there was something Bradbarian about a lot of them. They're desolate. There's a, a haunted loneliness to many of them. They're very stylized. They're very distinctive. You see those prints, and you know that it's him. And that's what makes a good writer a good writer. If you read a sentence of Bradbury, as you did with Dandelion Wine, you know that's Ray Bradbury right away. So I think those of us who are artists you create this DNA, if you will, uh, as you said earlier, of the DNA of your, your artistic vision and your voice, and it becomes recognizable as you. And I saw in Dan's work that, that DNA that also was in my own work. I write a lot about melancholy, about sadness, about loneliness, about isolation, about uh, haunted people. I'm a big believer. I mean, the ethos of Dark Black, this book, is that you don't need a ghost to be haunted. We're haunted by our own shame, by our own uh, melancholy, by our isolation, by our failures, and we endeavor to come out of them and grow from them, hopefully. And that's what I wanted to explore with this book, with some stories that are straight up realist, some stories that are supernatural. So in, in some ways, the Bradburyan footprint is all over this book. But I also knew that I wanted this book to be illustrated because I'm a visual person. I said, I, I drew comic books. I, I made films as a young man. I mean, more and more people are visual learners in our society. And it kind of surprises me that there aren't as many books as there should be that are illustrated for adults. This should not just be the province of illustrated children's books. There should be illustrated grown-up books that are novels. Why can't novels be illustrated? More hybridic. Uh, in that way. And so that's something I wanted to do. You know, funny enough, when I told my agent that, she said, oh, please don't tell any publisher that you want to do that because they don't want to do that. They don't see that. You know, the New York establishment doesn't want to think about an additional 25 pages of illustrations uh -huh. because it's going to cost them money yeah. to print that. You know, when you're printing a book in the thousands of you know, print run, and you add 25 pages to every single unit, that's, that, the bottom line is that's gonna be a lot more expensive. And so I had worked with a company, an art book publisher in Los Angeles called Hatton Beard Press, and their whole philosophy is that every single book that they do should be an object de art. It should be an art object in and of itself. So what you're saying about Dark Black is that it was very important to us. End papers at the front, the font we selected is actually the same, uh, the same font as uh, it's Garamond, which was in Bradbury's very first book, Dark Carnival. And that book was highly influential on Dark Black. So, I mean, down to the typeset, the, 
the end papers, the illustrations, the cover. The beauty, as you know, as being a publisher, Sam, the beauty of working with a smaller independent press is that as a creator, you are much more hands-on. You have much more creative control. I've done books with HarperCollins and with Melville House in New York, and they're wonderful on many, many levels. I, I, I will do more books through New York houses. But there's something absolutely splendid about working with a small independent press where you are involved in every single stage of the production of the book. Yeah. Um, that takes a lot of work and it takes a sort of vision to not just be the writer of something, but to go, how do I want this book to look? What format should it be? What, you know, I, every single decision I was involved in and it was a lot, it was time consuming, but I'm really proud of this book and I, I appreciate you talking about it as an object of art in and of itself. That was the goal. It's a book that you're proud to see on a coffee table because it looks beautiful. Right. Yeah, the, the illustrations definitely add a lot. Yeah, and I worked with Dan. This is his studio, and I now just share it with him, you know, and, and he's a printmaker um, and an illustrator, and I worked with him on every single illustration. He read each story and then said, let's talk about each story and what we should do. And so we worked together and it was just a joy. I love that process. And it harkens back to something that Bradbury himself did throughout the fifties. He had an illustrator he worked with by the name of Joseph Mignani, who illustrated Fahrenheit 451, the cover of the, the, the paper man of fire, the golden apples of the sun. Every story had an illustration. October country was illustrated and he, he fought for that. He had to pay the artist out of his own pocket, um, you know, but it was something that was important to him to elevate the book and make it an art object and something different than just a typical mass produced prose book that you would buy in a superstore or on Amazon. And it, it, there's no visual component to it. That was really important to him. And that's something I'd like to continue to explore as a writer myself. I don't remember if I saw a Kindle version. Have you done it as an ebook or only hardcover? Only hardcover at this point because the publisher is a purist. I mean, they're mm -hmm. old school. They believe books should be a physical object that we hold in our hands. But there's now talk because there's been enough requests for an audiobook uh, and for an ebook. So I think that that's actually happening. I mean, my other books are ebooks. So the Bradbury Chronicles. I've actually updated. You can get an updated version of the Bradbury Chronicles only as an ebook. You can't get the updated version in print, but it has an additional chapter that covers the last years of Bradbury's life and what he was doing and what he was working on. And he was very active. It has another uh, photo section in it. Um, and so you can only get that as, as an, as an ebook. Uh, Listen to the echoes, which you cited is, is available both electronically and in physical format. But, Dark Black right now is with a publisher that really wants to adhere to an older model of book publishing, of attention to detail, a love for a quality product that is an art object that sits in your house. And you're like, wow, that's a beautiful book. And so for now, there's no ebook, but there, there probably will be within the next year. It's like these record companies producing vinyl records again. Exactly. With meticulous vinyl, uh, with meticulous liner notes, you know, the format's bigger. So cover art 
can really, there's more attention to cover art again. When things were reduced down to cassette or to CD, less attention was being given to the splendor of the old LP album cover, you know? And now that vinyl is enjoying this resurgence, more attention is being given to colored vinyl, you know, albums, the vinyl itself is artistic, meticulous, detailed liner notes, you know, I think the sequencing of song orders is similar to the way we sequence a collection of essays or we sequence a collection of short stories. And in the digital age, sequencing has kind of gone away because people can just a la carte songs, buy one song from the new Taylor Swift album as opposed to buying the whole thing that tells a story. And so I, I think the, in, it's a great analogy you're using talking about vinyl. I think book publishing is going to see a similar return to a respect for print and nostalgia for sitting down with an open book in the hands uh, and the weight of that beautiful book in your hands and enjoying reading it. That doesn't disparage in any means. I don't intend to disparage digital publishing because I think there are things that digital publishing can do that we can't do with the print book. I think they both can be explored artistically in their own ways. So I, I think we're, we're in a period that is really exciting to be working in publishing and books because I think it's wide open with podcasting as you do, with digital platforms, with traditional print platforms. It's almost a new wild west for all of the, us who work in books uh, with, with a new frontier that we can explore uh, in the ways that we tell our stories. And I'll add that your stories are not imitative of Bradbury in any way. Definitely your own original style. One of my favorites is it's written like a Rolling Stone article. I could absolutely see it in Rolling Stone about a, a punk rock musician who co-writes an album with a ghost. I'm so glad you nailed that. I mean, I wrote that intending that I'm going to write a short story that reads like it's in Rolling Stone. That's the exact publication I had in mind when I wrote it. I had read a great profile of Hank Williams III by Elizabeth Gilbert, who prior to writing, uh, I think it's Eat, Love, Pray or Eat, Pray, Love. I can't remember the mm -hmm. title of that, that bestseller. But prior to that, she wrote for GQ and wrote for all these magazines, fantastic magazine writer, and wrote this really sharp, voice-driven, uh, visual profile of Hank Williams III. Fantastic, fantastic profile. And I thought, could I write a short story that's fictional that reads like that magazine profile? And it became, I like challenging myself to write in different narrative forms. You know, we talk about the epistolary story, which like Dracula or Frankenstein or the color purple, they're written as letters or diaries. There's all these different narrative forms we can use to write, you know, not just a traditional first or third person story. So then I'm going to write a short story that's really uh, a mat reads like a magazine feature story. And I thought, what if you had this musician who collaborates with a ghost and creates this masterpiece? And I wrote that and it was a very easy story to write actually, once I got in that groove because I used to be a magazine writer. And once I got into that sort of voice, you know, it was the old cliche is it almost writes itself and it did. Weirdly enough, I mean, it, that story is called Guided by Demons and 
It's a loose extrapolation of the death of Scott Weiland, the singer of Stone Temple Pilots, who overdosed on his tour bus. And the week I finished that story, that story is very much kind of a fictional fantasy version of, of, of his tragic passing. The week I finished his story, I was at a hotel in, uh, in Minnesota at the Mall of America, right by the airport. And I, I looked out my window and I didn't even put together. I'm staring down of this Radisson Blue Hotel, looking down on a parking lot. And that's the parking lot that Scott Weiland died in. I'm like, wait a minute. Didn't he die in Minnesota? And, and I looked it up. And I'm, I had just written that story that week. And I'm in the hotel overlooking the, the death scene of Scott Weiland. It felt really weirdly mystical and, and, and creepy. But I, I, I'm glad you enjoyed that story. I mean, it's cheeky. It's, it's snarky. It's funny. Uh, it's also very dark. But I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, this book was not meant, Dark Black was not meant to be Bradbury-esque. It's meant to be my own. My voice is not Ray Bradbury. Nobody has Ray Bradbury's voice. Nobody. Mm. You know, we can all imitate him. Nobody's Ray Bradbury. And, and so at this point in my career, I have my own voice. And I, I knew that some people would be put off buying this book thinking this is going to be a continuation of Ray Bradbury. Mm. I can't be Ray Bradbury. Nobody can be Ray Bradbury. I have to be me. He's in my work. You know, the element of sadness, loneliness. Uh, I, the visual nature of my storytelling, Bradbury was very influenced by movies, and I think my stories are very visual. So he's there, but the voice is my own, and that's important for all of us as artists. Yeah, and I think that the premise of the story we were just talking about, of collaborating with an artist who's passed on, I think that does happen both in a mystical sense, somewhat of our minds being connected and even just in the physical sense of influence, being influenced by past writers. So I think, I think that's the key to that story is it's actually plausible, I think. I, I appreciate you saying that because, uh, you know, Bradbury taught me that every story should have a central metaphor to it. And so maybe this isn't, maybe there is no ghost in the story. Maybe it's the ghost is the influence of the musician himself within the punk rock musician. Maybe, you know, and so that, that's the metaphor is we're all haunted by those people who came before us as artists and what we learned from them in a good way. You know, this, this goes back to Ray Bradbury himself. In, a, in April of 1954, he finished the screenplay for Moby Dick for film director John Huston. And Bradbury had to adapt, you know, really one of the preeminent novels of American literature, this doorstop of a book into a two-hour movie, and it was not an easy task. And he was doing this while writing for a director he loved deeply who became this maniacal, narcissistic, vicious human being, John Huston, um, was not an easy person to work for. And in April of 1954, Bradbury was in London now, you know, finishing up the script, wrapping things up, he was almost done with the process, and needed to drive home the last 30 pages of the script, needed to just get it out. Uh, and he stood in front of a mirror in his, in his room, his hotel room, and said, looked in the mirror, looked at himself, and said, today I am Herman Melville. Mm -hmm. And he went back to his typewriter 
and ripped the 30 pages out that day, brought it to John Houston and says, these are the best 30 pages in the script. What did you do? And Bradbury said, look at me closely. Look at me right now because I'm, John, I'm Herman Melville, but I won't be for long. And so that gets at this metaphor you're talking about of the ghost of the artists who created us. It's a great story. I did that myself in one of my books of paraphrasing Ralph Waldo Emerson's philosophy, Living from the Soul. I really made that attempt to connect with his spirit and sort of imagine that he was writing through me in today's language. I love that. This, this gets at the idea of what is, do we have a calling in our soul that's embedded in us? And how do we listen to that? How do we hear it? You know, this is something that goes for all of us as parents. How do we guide our children to hearing uh, the reverberations that emanate from our soul? What are we here to do? What brings us bliss? What brings us great joy? What gets us into that zone that I was lucky enough to discover as creativity is, is what brought me into that zone. But everybody's got a different thing that brings them in to their zone of existence. It's exciting to hear you say what you, you did and, and connecting with, with Emerson, who also, incidentally, and no surprise, Bradbury loved deeply. Um, and there were many times, you know, I, I, every day I turned to Bradbury and I can hear him. Even as you're asking me questions and talking, Sam, I can hear Ray Bradbury sitting right here next to me, mm. responding to you, laughing mm. or giving you a quote. I spent so much time with him that I can hear his wisdom. So when I'm writing and creating, I'll go, Ray, what would you do here? And I, I hear his response. His, mm. his soul is now in my soul. Live forever, right? That was his mantra. It's mm. amazing. I love that. I think my favorite story in your book, Dark Black, is the one about the trumpet player who, who has his trumpet stolen before a big gig. <laughs> Definitely, you, you certainly have a theme of music running yeah. out of your stories, and you said you've written about music, but anything you remember about writing that particular story that stands out to you? Oh, yeah. Thanks for, for mentioning that story, because that story is... It, one of my favorites in the book actually too it's called song of the cicada um and yeah i mean the origins of that story i had traveled with my wife and children and my dad we drove to the rockies we drove from chicago all the way to the rockies i had this beautiful road trip talking and telling stories and listening to music and looking at freight trains and stopping in small towns and my dad grew up in iowa and we drove through his town where he grew up as a little boy in the 30s. And he showed me um, the location of an old ballroom in the 1940s and 50s that he went to and saw Louis Armstrong play there, Duke Ellington played there. And I'm like, wow, all these amazing artists in the middle of a cornfield, really, in mm -hmm. Iowa. They, I mean, Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and all these great jazz artists, legends. Played, played there. And I started to research it after we had returned home and found the dates they had played there, uh, you know, found articles about their performances in some of the newspapers, um, contacted Duke Ellington's biographer briefly by email and says, how did Duke Ellington get around at that time in the late 40s, early 50s? How was he traveling? 
and had this idea, you know, about uh, a band leader in really the demise of the big band era. You know, we're on the precipice of rock and roll being discovered. It's the early 1950s. Swing and big band is starting to, to wane in popularity, and we're now discovering new genres, going into jazz and then going into rock and roll and electrified blues. And um, how did Duke Ellington navigate that, you know? And he went through a period of, you know, a down period, in his in his career and so i kind of based the character on that and then the idea of he has this instrument like you know bb king i believe who has lucille they all, mm -hmm. some musicians have a prized instrument that they play throughout their entire career and it, it's this this band leader who has a trumpet he grew up in harlem and his father gave him a trumpet as a little boy and he has played this trumpet now around the world and all of his legendary records are now on this trumpet. And one night in Omaha backstage, the trumpet goes missing and is stolen. And the next night he has a gig uh, in Iowa at a ballroom and it's going to be broadcast on radio that night. It's an opportunity for his waning swing career to reach a national audience. A lot of those ballroom recordings were broadcast live on radio. I started researching all of that. Mm -hmm. What I do as a nonfiction writer, I love research. So all my fiction, I research heavily, want to authenticate everything. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's really a process of the man has to figure out a way. This is a golden opportunity for him to re-seize the glory of his career by reaching a national audience. And now the instrument he's played his entire career given to him by his dad is ripped off. What does he do? Um, I, I'm glad that that story spoke to you. Um, I think it's a sweet story. Not all the stories in this book are sad or, or dark as the title says. I mean, I think there's an element of Bradbury and hope very much embedded in the ending of that story. I don't want to give it away, but I'm glad that it spoke right. to you because that's that's an important story to me too. And you know, I remember visiting that area of the ballroom and hearing the summer cicadas and the trees, that magnificent buzzing sound. And that infiltrates the story too, um, as the band leader stands in the parking lot and listens to the cicadas and, and realizes that it's music, that insects are, it's music. That's mm -hmm. kind of dandelion wine. It's this listening to the world and the universe. So thank you for, for letting that story speak to you, Sam. Yeah, that's great. You have a terrific series on YouTube of lessons Ray Bradbury taught you about creativity. So I'll be pointing people towards that. Do you have one particular website that uh, people should look up to keep track of you? Yeah, you know, thanks for, for plugging that. So my website is samweller.net. And... I just finished a 25,000 word blog post. I mean, that's it's a novella basically uh, called The Essential Bradbury. And it's the 25 stories everybody should read, from my opinion, if you want to discover Ray Bradbury. That just posted a couple weeks ago. So I'm pretty active there. And then I'm very active, as you know, and as you are on Twitter. I mean, that's probably the social media platform I use the most. I have not been banned from Twitter, thankfully, like some <laughs> others have been uh, uh, yet um, and never. But uh, I'm, I'm active there and I post uh, about Ray Bradbury. When I do post about politics, I tend to see a nosedive in my, in my followers. 
Bradbury always told me, don't get political because you'll alienate 50% of your audience right away. But yet in the 50s, he was entirely political. So he was kind of hypocritical in that advice. (laughs) So between Twitter, which is at Sam underscore underscore Weller, you'll see my my avatar pop up uh, or my website, samweller.net. You can keep up on things. And then um, Creativity 451 is a is a series that I need to do a new episode on. My nine-year-old is like, when do you want to do the new episode of your YouTube series? You know, my <laughs> nine-year-old constantly at me about, you know, you need to update your YouTube um, thing. And so you know, all this stuff takes time and you do it as a labor of love. You, nobody gets paid for doing it. Well, no, some people, these big YouTubers get paid massively, but I'm not. So I do need to do some more series, but that some more episodes, but that's very much what are the creative wisdoms that Bradbury handed to me that I learned that I can then share with, with people who watch that. So thanks for bringing that up. Well, Sam, it's been so great talking with you. You're a fount of information and inspiration. I could go on all day about Ray Bradbury. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sam. Keep up all the great work. And I hope to meet you when, when uh, we're allowed to emerge maskless and, and celebrate life again in person. Thanks for listening to Living from the Soul. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. This is an ad-free podcast supported by my books, which are available at samtorode.com. The theme music is by Gideon Tarode.